Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses together to begin this time of worship by hearing from the Lord we trust. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, read this way in the New American Standard Bible. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation upon which we, as followers of Christ, are to build our lives is the foundation of the Bible. When Paul speaks through this letter to the Ephesian church, when he speaks about the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, undoubtedly he was thinking of what we know as the New Testament, which is the work of the Spirit of God through the apostles of Christ in what they remembered when the Holy Spirit reminded them what to say. But also, the prophets. We know that the Old Testament is primarily the work of prophets. Men whom God spoke to and through whom God spoke. And we have both of the Testaments which make up our Bible. It is the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Of course, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, the Apostle talks about how no one can lay any other foundation other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. But the foundation of the church is not only Jesus, but also the Scripture. Why? Because we know, for instance, in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is speaking to the Apostles in His post-resurrection appearance to them, He sits them down, and he starts with the books of Moses, and then he goes to the Psalms, he goes to the prophets, and he shows how he is the central figure in all of the Old Testament. If that's true in the Old Testament, of course it's true in the New Testament. The Bible is what we are to build our lives upon A life that's centered in the Word of God is indeed centered in the person of Christ because He is the primary subject of Scripture. Prior to the coming down of the Iron Curtain that separated the free world from Eastern Europe and Russia and beyond, there was a play which had been written to mock Christianity. It was entitled Christ in Tuxedo. It was highly anticipated. Critics were writing about it in the Russian press. People wanted to see this representation of the mockery of the church of Jesus Christ and, in fact, of Jesus himself. The leading actor was well-known and very skilled in his art. The curtain raised on the premiere evening, and what was once a church had become a bar, and there was much drinking and gambling 
in the church building. Nuns found themselves leaning on the rail of the bar, engaging in what was taking place. This created quite a stir in and of itself. And then from off stage walked the primary player. He opened a New Testament and he began to read the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he continued to read. He was supposed to stop after having read a bit, but it was this if he became under a spell and he read the entire Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters. And when he finished, he fell on his knees and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The curtain fell. The play was not presented that evening. And it never was presented. There is power in the Word of God. Even when it is read, there is transformational power in the Word of God. We who make up the church of Jesus Christ have been called to teach and live out the Word of God. The power of transformation is incredible in the Holy Word of God. As the Holy Spirit does indeed teach us. This morning we want to consider what is the Word of God? What is the Bible? If we were to go to Exodus 9.16 and then find our way into the New Testament at Romans 9.17, we would hear the very same words, introduced differently, but the very same words. When Moses finds his way once more into the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in his effort to dislodge his people who had been for over 400 years slaves in that country. He says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says this. And then he says, the Lord has raised you up to show His power to you and to carry His message throughout all the earth. That's the way Hebrew, Exodus 9, verse 16 speaks. When Paul takes that verse, it's interesting and instructive as to how he introduces that verse, quoting the verse which I just mentioned. And he introduces it this way, the Scripture says. Remember how Moses had introduced those words? The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, and now He says the Scripture says. So that's what we mean when we say the Bible is God's Word. Scripture is God's Word. When we hear the Scripture, we hear the voice of God. Many times people say, I don't hear God. Well, what they're really meaning is they don't hear an audible voice. But when we open the Bible and look at it, All of it, quite frankly. The Bible says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Speaking of the Old Testament, when that was first written by Paul, and it's true of the Old Testament today, but it is inclusive of the New Testament. Every bit of the Scripture, which should serve as a challenge to us today, that we are not satisfied to read just a little bit, We're interested in hearing the whole counsel of God so that we can not simply hear it, 
but apply it in our lives. Here's a second question related to building our lives on God's Word. Why build our lives on God's Word anyway? Here's the reason for that. It is not relative, as we are told, in this era in history. And we're not unique. That's happened throughout history. The pundits and the critics of Scripture have sought to bury it. And one of the ways they have sought to bury the Word of God and discredit the Word of God is to point out what they believe are flaws. They're very clever and very deceitful, I might add. Very disingenuous. Very poor scholarship is oftentimes represented by such liberal scholars, so-called, of the Bible. But what we do know is the Scripture is not relative. It is absolute. Henry Miller, the name may mean little to nothing to you, but in the first half of the 20th century, he was described in this way. The evangelist of unfettered sex. That's the way he was described. His writings were so lurid and so suggestive that they were banned from the United States. He himself left the U.S. and went to Paris, carried on his work there. Listen to what he said about truth. He said, I said to myself that I would write the truth, and I thought I was. But I found I couldn't. There's nobody can write absolute truth. I beg your pardon, Mr. Miller. God is the author of absolute truth. And He's used people throughout history in the period of the canonizing of Scripture who have been agents of the writing of the Word of God. The absolute truth. God's Word is absolute, first of all and foremost, because of who? He is, remember, it is God's Word. He is holy. Leviticus 19.2, among other places, God says, I am holy. Jesus, in referring to His Father in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God is holy. That means He's set apart. He's different than we are. He is above us. His thoughts are not our thoughts, nor... Our ways, His ways, as high the heavens are above the earth, so are His thoughts, which are represented in Scripture, are above ours. He's holy, which makes His Word absolute. He is reliable. This morning I was reading in my Bible reading as I'm journeying through the Bible this year. And in Psalm 145, I believe it is, verse 13, the Scripture says this, It said, the Lord is faithful in all His words. The Lord, when He speaks, we can be confident that we are hearing faithful and true words. In the book of Psalm, we read from chapter 19, verse 7. The first part of 19, verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. In Psalm 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, purified seven times. And we know the word, the number rather, seven in biblical 
numerology is the number of perfection. It's another way of saying the Lord's word is perfect. And then in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, the scriptures tell us that all the word of God is true. We have an incredible document which has been given to us by God through the agency of men and women who are devoted to the Lord so that we could have absolute truth upon which to base our life. God cannot lie. He's not a man that He should lie. Or son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Has He promised and will He not fulfill it? What I'm doing today, speaking about the Word of God, I'm appealing to the final authority on all matters, and that's to God and by connection to His Word. We're looking at the internal evidence. That would be the evidence in the Bible that God's Word is indeed the foundation upon which we are to build our lives. God willing, next week, I'll look at external evidence. Evidence that would be perhaps persuasive to people who aren't believers about the trustworthiness of Scripture. God's Word is absolute because He is holy, He is reliable, and He does not change. The word that the theologians use for that is He is immutable. He says about Himself in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Well, His Word is absolute not simply because of who He is. His Word is absolute because the Word itself is eternal. The Bible says in Psalm 119.89, O Lord, Your Word is forever fixed in the heavens. God's Word is immovable. It cannot be changed. And it is in that case a basis of our seeing its absoluteness and its trustworthiness. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, the Bible says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus says in Matthew 24:35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. In John 10:35, Jesus says this, The Scripture cannot be broken. There's absolutely no way to dismantle the Scripture. Voltaire, a name that perhaps is familiar to you, he was a French philosopher in the Enlightenment era, and he set out, His mission, his self-appointed mission, was to debunk the Bible, to show that it was irrelevant, that it was not trustworthy. He died without having achieved his goal. At one time, he was so bold as to say, in 20 years from now, the Bible will be obsolete. And the basis of that statement was he was going to expose all the errors in the Bible and the inadequacy of the Word of God. Well, Voltaire is dead. The Bible still living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word is not chained, is what Paul wrote to Timothy. Nothing can bind up the Word of God. God's Word is eternal. It cannot be broken. God's Word is absolute. This in itself begs our attention. It cries out to us, to take it in our minds and hearts and live it out in our lives. 
It is relevant. Here again, the critics today would say, the Bible is an antiquated book. An American tourist was traveling in East Africa. And as he made his way in some of the rural areas, he came to a village and there was a man who was dressed in tribal garb who was sitting under a tree. And as he approached the man, he noticed he was reading something. And when he got closer to the man, it was a Bible. And the American who was an elitist and thought more highly of his intellectual capacity as he ought, said with a smirk on his face to this native African. In my country, that book is out of date. And then the African turned and spoke in very clear English, I might add, to this American tourist. He said, if this book were out of date in my country, you would already be eaten here today. (laughs) I would say the Bible was relevant. To both of those men, wouldn't you? Certainly. The Bible, we have seen in 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed. Some of the translations say inspired by God. And that's an unfortunate translation, by the way. The word literally is a compound word using the word God and breathed out. God breathed. It was exhaled more than inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Would you say that's usefulness? And we're to do good works so that God will be glorified. We are here because we are created to bring glory to God. Certainly, that's true. In 2 Timothy 3.15, the verse right before that, Paul writes to Timothy, He said, from infancy, you have known the sacred Scriptures. And it's through them that you have come to receive salvation by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm particularly fond of the relevancy of the Bible to my salvation. In 1 Peter 2.23, This is what Peter writes. He said, You have been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. Not by perishable seed, but by imperishable seed. The Word of God is that which gives life where there was death. Gives hope where there was despair. Gives direction where there was nothing but confusion. This is our privilege having been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. No man, woman, or child on earth is ever born again apart from the message of the Gospel of God. The Word of God. It's also relevant to our sanctity. What does that mean? That's a big word. It simply means to our being set apart for God's use. To be sanctified means to be holy. And to be holy literally means to be set apart. As it relates to us who know Christ, we've been set apart to be useful to Him. And so the Scripture is that tool which the Holy Spirit of God uses to sanctify us. Jesus says as much in John 17, 17. He says, 
this. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Psalm 119, David says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then, in 2 Timothy 3.16, again, we talked about how he, it should be 3.17. I made a mistake on that. That it prepares us for all the good works. I've already alluded to that. Here's another area in which the Word of God, the Bible, is relevant and therefore encourages us to build our lives on the foundation of the Word of God, which has Jesus as its focal point. It's relevant to our sanctity. In Isaiah 40:18, the Bible says, If only you had paid attention to my commandments, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the ways of the sea. Isn't that a beautiful picture that is painted? Peace like the waves of the sea. Unbelievable. What God has done when He saved us. Jesus says, My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. So don't be afraid. and Don't be troubled. Because I'm giving you my peace. This happens when we receive Jesus. Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah the prophet says, I found your words and I ate them. And they were my joy and they became my delight. Do you have that kind of joy today? Delight? Do you have peace that passes all understanding? Well, if you know Jesus Christ, it's accessible to you if you will simply do what He says. And also, if you don't know Jesus today, this life is yours for the taking by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Helen Keller, the woman who had once been blind, deaf, and dumb, through the emphasis of her teacher, Anne Sullivan, she came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior after she had her world opened up to understand things. This is what she said, The Bible seems to be like a river of light flowing through my darkness and has been kept my hope of accomplishments bright when things seem difficult to overcome. Helen Keller, of course. The Word of God is relevant also to our safety. In Proverbs 1.33, the Bible says, Listen to me and you will dwell securely. You will not be dread you will be free, rather, from the dread of disaster. That's a good word, isn't it? Free from the dread of disaster and, in actuality, secure. If we will listen to the Lord. Matthew seven twenty four through 27 Jesus teaches this familiar parable. He said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice... It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell. The floods come. And actually, it's the word rivers is really what it is. And you know that region of the world, this picture that's been painting, painted by Jesus of two different men building on two different foundations. The first is the wise man building his house on the rock. And the rock would be the words of Jesus. The, he who hears these words of mine and does them, is like a man who built his house on a rock. 
they're built in what we call back where I came from, gullies. I used to love to play as a boy on the farm of a great aunt, gullies. And they were pretty deep. They looked like the Grand Canyon at the time, but they are probably only 8 or 10 feet deep. But that's pretty big for a boy. But in that region of the world where biblical writers lived, there were what are still called wadis. And they're riverbeds that are dry during most of the year. But when the rains come, watch out, flash flood. So this man builds his house on the rock in a wadi. And when the rain comes and the rivers follow and the wind blows and slams against the house, this is what Jesus said. He said, that man will see his house stand. Why? He built his house on the rock of the Word of God. He goes on to talk about there was another man. He was a foolish man. He built his house on the sand. And the same storm that tried to destroy the life of the wise man came against the fool. The fool's life was destroyed. The man who built his house on the rock was safe. Jesus is our rock, isn't He? Storms are inevitable in the lives of believing people. People who have staked everything on the person of Jesus Christ, they are going to be under attack. Jesus promised that. And those of us who are seeking Him understand. Fighting's within and dangers without is the way that Paul describes it in his own testimony. There was a Muslim man, another East African, who was a park ranger. There had been a report in his area of responsibility about a rogue elephant who was terrorizing villagers in the area. He and a partner went out to try to locate this elephant and anesthetize him, if need be, certainly to tranquilize him and see what could be done for it. They ran across this elephant. And the elephant, for some reason, focused on this one ranger. Now, this ranger was a Muslim, but a part of the Scripture had been placed in his hand. And he had secretly begun to read the Gospels. And his heart was being changed. He went on into the epistles, and he was reading them. His heart was warming up. Do you remember what the Bible says was the experience of those two disciples of Christ, unnamed, on the Resurrection Sunday as they were walking their way in sadness back to their village. And all of a sudden Jesus appears and Jesus invited Himself to dinner and He sat down and as they were eating dinner together, Jesus began with Moses and went all the way through the prophets, the Scripture says, and taught all things about Himself in Moses and the prophets. And the Scripture says, after Jesus suddenly disappeared as quickly as He had appeared, this is what they said, looking at each other. They said, did our hearts not burn when He told us about Himself from the Scripture? Have you ever had that happen to you? When you're reading the Bible, your heart just burned. And it was not a bad heartburn. It was the best kind of heartburn anybody could have. And it was the Holy Spirit of God speaking. This man's heart was burning as he was running away from this rogue elephant. 
for every one step he took, the elephant took two. It was fast. It was making up ground on him. He looked behind. It was not very far. And finally, he did the only thing he knew yet to do. There was no place to hide. They were in an open field where he was running every way he looked. So he turned around and he looked at this elephant and he says, Jesus says you can't destroy me. In the name of Jesus, stop. And lo and behold, the elephant stopped dead in its tracks and unceremoniously turned around and began to saunter off. Needless to say, Ahmed, this man's name, fell to his knees and gave his life to Jesus Christ. The Word of God is powerful to save people. The most important act of saving is Jesus' work in us to save us, for sure. But in this case, he was saved from disaster. So, the Bible is relevant to safety, but also to society. I wish we had time to go to chapters 22 and 23 of Second Kings. I'll leave that to you to do on your own. And read about Josiah and how when the Word of God, which had been lost, was found and read, just read, not expounded, but read. A great reform took place, a revival in his heart, but the whole nation of Judah was turned upside down in the best sense of the word because of what God did through the word of God. After World War II, a squad of Marines were going through village after village in Okinawa to see if there was any vestige of resistance still existing in those villages. They saw one village after another, and they came to a village, and it was remarkably different. There was order in the village. There was peace in the village. And they began to inquire about why the village was the way it was. And they were told that that village had adopted the Ten Commandments for its legal code, and it had adopted the Sermon on the Mount for its conduct code for social relationships. And what they noticed is they explored a little more carefully. They noticed that there were no drunks. They began to ask divorce was non-existent. Also, they discovered that there were no jails. They were unnecessary. There were no brothels. Great happiness and health predominated that village. And one of the Marines said to his companion, maybe we're using the wrong kinds of weapons to make the world over. Jesus Christ, presented in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, transforms societies. In the case of President Abraham Lincoln, He received a Bible in 1864. He was at the time running for president the second time. And he received it from a group of African Americans from Baltimore. They were expressing their appreciation for all that he had done in declaring the emancipation of all slaves in all parts of the United States, both South and North. This is what he said upon being presented the Bible. In regard to this great book, I have but to say, it is the best gift God has given to man. We know Jesus is the best gift, but we can 
give our president a break there. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare here and hereafter are to be found portrayed in it. I repeat, the Word of God is relevant for society. And lastly, the Word of God is relevant to success. Joshua 1.8 says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. That's God's viewpoint of what prosperity and success are. Not the world's view, but God's view. And Psalm 119, 105, where the Word of God says that God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. If we follow the light of the Word of God, we are going to be prosperous and successful from God's point of view. We're going to hear someday when we stand before the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. And we serve Him based upon the Word of God. Luke eleven twenty eight says, this. Jesus says this, whoever hears the Word of God and does it is blessed. We need to be men and women who are committed to the Word of God and let the Word of God shape our worldview and change the way in which we do what we do. John Wanamaker, a name which is probably unfamiliar with most of you, he was a famous American merchant out of Philadelphia in the late 19th century. He bought and sold property in his lifetime by today's value that would come to $20 billion. Despite all these great buys, this was his claim. It was as a boy at 11 years of age that I made my biggest purchase. He bought a small red leather Bible, which he earned working in his father's brick factory, he would get two cents per hundred bricks he turned in the kiln. And he paid it out over time. He said the Bible, this little red Bible, was the greatest far-reaching purchase I ever made for that Bible made me what I am today. Do you want to be successful? Well, there's only one way to be successful. And that is to order your life by the Word of God and trust the Holy Spirit to guide you. Here's the last question we're going to consider about the Bible. Why to build our lives upon it? It's this. What are we to do to ensure that the Bible is the only foundation upon which to build our lives? Ezra 7.10 says, Ezra devoted himself to the study of the law of God. That would be the equivalent of the Bible for us today. And to do it and to teach its statutes and rules to Israel. Very simple. This is what we are to do. Study the Bible. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15 that we are to study the Scriptures. You don't have to have a college degree to understand the Bible. You don't even have to have a high school degree. My father concluded the ninth grade in his academics. And he understood the Bible. You just have to have a heart that's committed and want to hear. And God will teach us through the Bible what we need to know. You need to study. It takes time. Read your Bible. 
You don't have to have a Bible course or anything like that. Read the Bible. And don't hunt and peck. Remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. Read the Bible. All of it. And you will find yourself being a person whose life is built on the proper foundation. Here's the second thing. And this is exactly following the model of Ezra. And then you submit to the Bible. Do it, is what the Scripture says. Don't be like a man who looks at himself in a mirror, turns away, and the moment he turns away, he forgets what he looked like when he looked in the mirror. That's what James writes about. The Bible is the mirror. We look into the Word of God and we see the reflection of who we are. And that has the capacity to change us when we look at the Word of God and adjust our lives accordingly to the Word of God. So submit to the Bible. Do what it says. It's God's voice. Remember, He's speaking to us. Here's the last thing. Share the Bible with others. Romans 1.16 says, The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all men. God uses the Word of God, as we've already seen, to transform people change people, and in effect, because a society is made up of people, to change the society. We are called by God to do exactly what Ezra himself did. We're called to build our lives on the Word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here today and worship you. And we thank you for the Bible, that it's your Word and for your Holy Spirit who inspired it and teaches us. And we ask, Lord, that we would follow you with a whole heart and understand the whole counsel of God due to a commitment to study your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.